0: Hello, thank you for joining us for this graduate research podcast with Anna Caceres on her study of political discourses on migrants and the British National Health Service. I'm Jordan Buchanan, and I'm convening this interview for the Scottish Centre for Global History. Thank you, Anna, for joining us. Could you introduce yourself for our audience, please?
1: Hi, yes, I'm Anna Caceres. I've just finished a research master's at the University of Leiden in the Netherlands, um, where I was studying specifically the governance of migration and diversity from 1945. And um, so it was an interdisciplinary research masters, but the main portion of that was history. And um, prior to that, I also studied at the University of Edinburgh, where I did uh, an undergraduate in history and political science. So again, this kind of interdisciplinary background.
0: Uh, what got you into study? Why did you choose to study this?
1: Um, well, I chose to study history because I think that, you know, the stories that we tell about history are used in very political ways. You know, they're used to legitimize things in the present um, to legitimize certain behaviors or institutions as normal by saying, telling a story of like, oh, it's, well, it's always been this way. And so I do find the questions of, well, has it actually always been this way? Quite interesting. Um, and especially, you know, as someone who does, who does like to approach things from for more than one discipline, I think history is a really good uh, tool for answering those kinds of questions.
0: Great. Sounds like a, an excellent reason to, to pursue history and uh, using that interdisciplinary method is, is a, a very valuable for understanding the past. So can you tell us about this story and the research that you did uh, for your master's project on migration and the British NHS?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the project looked at at discourses within the British government, both in the parliament and in the civil service, and how migrants were discussed in relation to the nascent health service um, between the years 1948 and 1971. So I wanted to look at like the very early years of the health service, obviously, since it's established in 1948, which is when the study starts. Um, And I wanted to look at those early years, because, you know, Nowadays, we do have this very entrenched discourse about migrants being this kind of net harm for the NHS. And I started this study from this position of like, well, when does that actually start? And why does it start? And how did it look like back then? Um, and yeah, the answer is like, it actually was there from the start. It's not like it kind of comes about at a specific moment Um, with like some kind of spike in migration or anything. It's actually there even almost before the health service starts. So it's just like the kind of xenophobia that was already present within the government is translated into um, into this new realm And yeah, so the study, the period examined is also a period that looks at um, a period of relatively free migration um, in the UK. So in 1948, we pass a a law called the British Nationality Act, which extends the right to residency to all citizens of the British Commonwealth. Um, And then in 1971, we pass the 1971 Immigration Act, which is the kind of final death knell of those rights, like those rights are being progressively chipped away throughout the period and beginning in 1961 with the Commonwealth Immigrants Act. And then there's another one in 65 and another one in 68. So I thought that this was going to be a really interesting period to look at, you know, because there is this transition from open borders to really quite closed borders. And so I expected there to be quite a lot of discussion of migration in in those years. Um, And also, you know, obviously with the health service just starting, there's also going to be a lot of discussion about that. Um, And it did turn out to be like a really interesting uh, period, especially because we're seeing this sort of switch from like predominantly um, open borders for Commonwealth migrants to predominantly open borders for like European migrants, right. So there is this kind of uh, switch happening as well and that is reflected in how, how we are talking about migrants at the time. Um, in terms of like the key findings of this study, the first one is that kind of chronological finding that I mentioned earlier about this 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 um, concern about migration and the NHS that's present from the start. Interestingly, we do talk about it a bit differently from how we talk about it nowadays. So nowadays we have a lot of hysteria about migrants in the NHS. You know as migrants as service users of the nhs even to the extent that we worry about like how many kids migrants are having and how much that's costing like maternity services and all this sort of stuff back then we didn't really talk about it in those terms instead we tried to distinguish between like bona fide migrants and what was called foreign visitors right so like people who allegedly just came to britain to get medical treatment um, although this distinction is a bit like fuzzy because it actually was very difficult at that time <laughs> to distinguish between who was a who was a migrant and who was a visitor. So that was one of the first findings. And then the the second finding was really about um like kind of racial hierarchies. So that's one of the innovations of the study. I oh, sorry. I- about to mute my notifications and um, that's one of the innovations of the study I look at like a broad cross-section of migrant groups like I don't just look at um, like commonwealth migrants migrants specifically from the new commonwealth which is what there's a lot of focus on so like the West Indies India Pakistan etc I also look at white migrant groups like white migrants from the old commonwealth so Australia New Zealand um, even South Africa to some extent uh, and then also European migrants um, and white migrants from elsewhere in the world. Um, so there is, yeah, there is this, uh, this real cross-section and that, from that I was able to look at kind of like hierarchies of desirability, like in as much as there was anxiety towards all migrants to some extent, there was much, much more towards um, black and brown groups even though in a legal sense, these, uh, these migrants were more British than say a French migrant, right? <laughs> Um, so, yeah, that was that was a key finding. Um, and then also I, one of the interesting findings was about the kind of shape of British racism. And um, there's been a lot of focus, you know, even in the present day, we still have this as well with our discourse about like NHS heroes and like all these like wonderful migrant doctors and whatever. Um, and I wanted to look at, like, well, how does that actually, how much impact do those kinds of positive discourses actually have on how we think about migrants as a whole? And by looking really closely at, like, who was saying that and when were they saying it and how were they saying it, um, you know, I was able to really uncover that this was largely like a tokenistic discourse, right? Because even though they were praising, for example, um, nurses from Jamaica, they would then at the same time be like delegitimizing their contribution to the health service. So they were portrayed primarily as students or temporary workers. They were never actively recruited in the same way that, you know, um, I don't know, Australian nurses were, for example. Um, so that the, this, this discourse, um, this positive discourse about um, specifically like racial minority migrant uh, workers was yeah just tokenism
0: <laughs> just total tokenism. That sounds like some excellent uh some excellent research and it seems like you're fitting it quite well into the present discourses on the ideas of immigration and the NHS so I was wondering like that's directly why did you choose to study this project what inspired you to to look at this?
1: Um, well, I mean, a couple of things, like I've always been interested in migration, because uh, I'm, I'm a first generation migrant, my parents are first generation migrants as well, we come from uh, Argentina. So that's, that's always been interesting um, to me. And also, I just think that the, in terms of why I wanted to look at the NHS specifically, you know, I think, like the cultural significance of the health service in the UK can almost like, not be understated. It's one of the very few branches of the welfare service that has this, you know, cross political spectrum support. Like, even though like on the right, especially the fiscal right, there will often be these like attempts to chip away at the service. And these have to be done in a very like covert way. Like you can't openly say like, I want to defund or privatize the NHS. And I think that that is a real testament to like how culturally significant it is. Like it is really like the crown jewel of the health service. Um, And then, yeah, I think like welfare state entitlement generally is a good is a good avenue to look at sort of discourses of belonging, because, you know, in order to be entitled to welfare state provision, you have to be designated as an insider, right? So like when we look at how migrants, you know, uh, overlap with the welfare state, we, we do see a lot of these kind of like constructions of insiders and outsiders and i thought that the nhs would be like the best area within that to to look at that
0: and uh so again reaching, touching on that topic of comparing with today's attitudes how do you deal with this uh current view of the nhs and migration while doing this research how did it influence what you were doing
1: um well, I mean, it inspired the questions, but ultimately I did start to realize that I was sort of asking the wrong questions. Like this question of like, when does this discourse emerge was ultimately the wrong question because it was always there, right? Um, but it, in terms of how it inspired, how, how it overlapped or like affected this research, it just made me like more, I'm more furious about the current situation, you know, because obviously like even, um, in the present day, we do recognize that migrants are essential for staffing the NHS. There was a lot of talk about that during the Brexit uh, referendum. But when you look at the historical trends and you realize that not only is that the case now, that was in fact always the case. And without migration, we probably couldn't have even like opened the doors <laughs> for the health service. It does It does make you even more furious that this is sort of where we're at politically.
0: It's a really interesting answer, and I really uh, thought that the idea of a furious reaction stood out to me. So I was just wondering, for historians and other researchers, emotions can often uh, be, uh, like, flare up throughout the research, and I was wondering how you handled the emotional response to this work.
1: Um, yeah, I think for me, what kind of got me through it was um, the fact that there is a, a real knowledge deficit with most people that you will talk to about this, right? Like I remember once I was in a bar in Newtown, and I was talking to some old man, and uh, he, you know, he asked me what I did, and I told him that I was studying migrants in the NHS, and he's like, "Oh, so you're learning about when the Jamaicans colonized London?" And I was just sitting there like, "What? <laughs> what are you talking about? What are you talking about?" And you know as much as like the the political dimension or the news can make you feel furious in this really like futile way because you have no way to respond um when it comes to just discussions with people who have these like very ignorant views it's almost comical because it's just like you you honestly have no idea what you're t- like you're just wrong on on the facts i know that a lot of history can be quite subjective and open to interpretation but there are just some very key like objective facts that you're missing here you know um, so that did that. Remembering that conversation does help me to sort of soothe the rage.
0: Interesting story. Um, yeah, I've certainly found that as studying history, it's. And uh, I, I now try not to talk about it in public because I don't want to get into a conversation about uh, things that are just objectively wrong, uh, like they're misled. And so I, I try to avoid that that conversation. How do you find that as a someone who studied history? Uh, and especially someone who studied this master's program, who, which is, you know, really politically loaded. How do how do you how do you feel uh, about the kind of research and work that you do?
1: um Do you mean in terms of like getting into conversations with other people?
0: Just in terms um, of public engagement, yeah.
1: Public engagement. I mean, I I really enjoy it. Like, i it obviously is very frustrating because it is a field that everyone has an opinion and people are very reticent to recognize that their opinion may be like a tad less informed, you know, and <laughs> um, so that can be very frustrating. I do also think there is a gender element to it. I have often found myself being like talked over by men in a way that is not so often the case with uh with women. Um, but I really enjoy public engagement. Like I think it's really, really important. And I do think that um most people outside of these kind of hostile conversations in bars are very uh, enthusiastic about engaging with subjects from a kind of academic perspective you know not from this sort of like daily mail like sensationalist reporting like people do want to know more and if you if you make that information accessible to them the the, the response can be really really good so it is something that i, I really enjoy doing
0: interesting um yeah, so I'll go back to the research. Um, so what sources did you use to, to do this work?
1: Yeah, so that's actually an interesting story because uh, obviously with the pandemic, the National Archives shut for like a year, a year and a half or something. So I had to completely rethink my source base. I was initially just gonna use um, civil service archives Um, Like, mainly like Ministry of Health, uh, colonial office, uh, foreign office, so people who either dealt with migration or people who dealt with healthcare provision, right? Um, But then, yeah, with the closure of the archives, I was only able to do one research trip um, where I just, like, made, like, thousands and thousands of copies of whatever I could find that seemed relevant. And I also had some copies from previous research trips that I was able to bring in, but the main backbone of the thesis ended up being parliamentary debates that are available uh, digitally on Hansard, um, which, you know, was a source base that I'd never really used, um, but it was it actually ended up being a really cool thing for the project because because it was a digital source and um, a digitized source as well. I was able to download uh, a really large amount and do some do some like quite elemental text mining with it, so feeding um, like all of these debates into Python and then do some like linguistic analysis, which I just couldn't have done with like hard copy civil service archives. Like even if I'd tried to digitize them myself, like the the optical character recognition is not is not really what it needs to be for that sort of uh, stuff. So so that was, ended up being a good thing, although it was a very stressful sort of six months figuring out. <laughs> figuring out how to do that um but yeah i got there in the end
0: great, great way to overcome the, the challenges of the pandemic mm-hmm. um so you were speaking before about the you know the kind of key themes that emerged from your work uh, and i was wondering what can we learn from looking at the different migrant groups because you spoke about uh migrants from the global north as well as global south as well as uh, the racial dynamic of that so what can we learn from looking at these different groups
1: Um, Well, definitely the take home is that there are very clear hierarchies and these hierarchies do fluctuate over time. And sometimes they are quite relative, right? So for example, in the very early years, um, there was a a recruitment scheme running in uh, continental Europe called the European Voluntary Workers. So like immediately post-war, it runs, I think, from 45 to 52, um, where they're recruiting displaced persons, like people who were displaced during the war to come and work uh, primarily in the welfare state, right? And initially there is this hierarchy between um, Ukrainian workers um, who they, yeah, Ukrainian workers who they find to be less desirable and Polish workers who they find to be very desirable, right? And that's, you know, Polish people are seen almost almost like British people because they were so instrumental in the World War II, uh, like war effort, right? But then once we start to get Commonwealth migration and suddenly, you know, you have like Jamaicans arriving, right, everyone's like, oh, we love the Ukrainians. Um, so this, you know, this does uh, this does fluctuate It is relative um, and it's it, you know, for that reason, I think it's also good to look at these kind of long term analyses and sort of trace trace where the fluctuations are, but they are still primarily uh, racially based and we can't really ignore that I think that's the main take home, you know, because we do have this attitude in the UK that we're not racist because we're less racist than the United States. And that's just a really terrible attitude and the history does not bear that out at all. So yeah, definitely scrap that one. <laughs> um, I was wondering if you had
0: any examples of those uh, those different groups as well. Any kind of- yes,
1: I, Yeah, I do have a really good example of this actually. So in 1950, and they pass uh, a piece of legislation called the nursing acts and it's the beginning of um, the professionalization of nursing right so nurses used to be kind of just like the servants of doctors but from 1950 onwards nurses are being more like kind of giving more like clinical responsibility. Um, and all these sorts of things, but the 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 Ministry of Health and the colonial office start to panic. Because within within the 1950 Nursing Act, there is also a provision to ease the registration, the professional registration of nurses who are trained abroad, right? Um, So this is to address like staffing shortages, they want to make it easier for migrant nurses to come and work in the UK, so they want to make it easier for their qualifications to be um, recognized, but they are very explicit in the internal correspondence that they want, they, they specifically say that they want this uh, ease of registration to be extended only to European nurses, so white nurses, right, and not to what at the time they were still calling colonial nurses. Um, so the way that they kind of work around that is they send uh, memos to all of the uh, colonial governments and they say like, okay, so we know that we've passed this this new piece of legislation, but we would actually like you to continue to work to the old uh, registration requirements, which were much more stringent, like much, much harder to then migrate to the UK. So, you know, they, and the reason that they did that, and they say this again explicitly in the archives is that they didn't want to be seen to be discriminating. So instead of just passing a separate law that says like, oh, this doesn't apply for colonial nurses, they do it kind of undercover and they just write to these governments and say like, do not apply this. And so it's like one law for, you know, one group of nurses and one law for everyone else. But you wouldn't know that if you just looked at the laws, you really have to look at the, the internal correspondence.
0: Okay, and did the, the, the attitudes towards uh, NHS workers, the migrants, did it change? Uh, or sorry, did working for the NHS change British attitudes towards migrants during this period?
1: No, <laughs> no, not really. Um, no, that is another, yeah, sort of key finding of the study, you know, like migrant. Uh, migrant nhs workers were used as this sort of symbol um, especially by people who were um who were hostile towards migrations so like Enoch Powell talks about um migrant nhs workers he talks about it in the rivers of blood speech right <laughs> Um, so, but he is obviously super hostile towards commonwealth migration, but he sort of throws it in there as a kind of like, no, it's not that I hate everyone from the commonwealth, you know, like, I just don't like these, these ones. <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, it really doesn't, like, it doesn't soften the blow. And I mean, this is just a, a hypothesis that I haven't actually done this research, but you know, they're actually, no, I do know this, I do know this. So this isn't in the thesis, but I know it from the material that I've looked at. There are very many cases of kind of elite Commonwealth individuals, whether they be doctors or even ambassadors um, reporting to MPs that they're being really heavily discriminated against by the British public. Because the thing is, you know, in as much as there is this sort of symbol of the NHS worker, you're not easily identifiable as an NHS worker, right? So if there is this kind of generalized xenophobia and racism, like your experience will be that of generalized xenophobia and racism. It doesn't matter whether you work for the NHS or not. So no, it hasn't changed attitudes.
0: So there seems to be quite a lot of pertinent themes that come out of this this work, uh, as unfortunately a lot of these attitudes, as you highlight, have not changed. Um, So I was wondering, as a direct question, why does this history matter?
1: Well, I think, you know, it's, it shows, it shows us kind of how far we have to go, right? It shows us that this kind of Brexit moment is not an isolated event in British history, and that it is a sort of integral part of British self identity. Um, And it's only by really recognizing that, that you can reckon with like the problem of discrimination and racism, like if you refuse to recognize the scale the longevity of the issue then you're never you're never going to get anywhere um and then at a more kind of academic level obviously like the 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 question of Um, Medical migration is incredibly important for like public health staffing, you know, questions of like, how do we attract and retain migrant labor within a public health um, infrastructure, especially in in the context of like acute, you know, staffing shortages, as we have here in the UK. These are all very relevant questions and discrimination ties into that, you know, because uh, even today, there is a lot of a lot of reports and qualitative studies done on the NHS. And when they interview, you know, black, Asian, minority, ethnic workers, one of the main complaints that they have is this consistent discrimination. So um, it is, yeah, it's an integral, it has to be an integral consideration for our staffing solutions as well.
0: Interesting. And just for a final question, uh, after finishing this master's and uh, now back in Edinburgh, so what is it? You are doing now and what are your aspirations for the future?
1: Um, yes, yeah, so I'm actually going to work for the Scottish Government now. I'm going to work in social research for the Department of Constitutional and External Affairs, so I will be looking at migration but I'm going to be looking at it um, in the present day context, uh, which is very exciting. And I would really like to uh, get as much as I can out of this position. There's lots of training opportunities. I'm very excited to um, pick up more quantitative research methods, and then hopefully one day like bring that back into academia and do like a PhD level study on something related to this. Um, but you know, hopefully by the time I, I get around to that, I'll have, uh, I'll have a lot more a
0: lot more methodology under my belt. So that would be good. Okay, so um, I wish you all the best with your future work. And so I'm just gonna conclude here. So again, thank you Anna for joining us for this discussion for the Scottish Centre for Global History. We hope it was an opportunity for you to reflect on your research experience and a way to share your findings with the public audience. We hope the audience has found this discussion useful to consider the historic connections to our present day to increase our understanding of the people around us. Thank you.